Solitaire Rose Radio, Episode 61, Interview with the Crew from Zero One Publishing. I have had the crew from Zero One Publishing on before. Kat Roca, Josh Finney, and Patrick McAvoy. Patrick McAvoy's done a episode of the Kirby podcast as well that I've done. And they've got a new book coming out on Kickstarter. But that's not the reason I have them on. Yes, it's nice when they've got something to promote and I enjoy helping them out. But they've always bring something to the table. They always talk about the creative process. They talk about different issues. And it's always a fun interview. And one of the things that I enjoy is that they they talk about the process. Not just the process of creating, not just the process of writing, not just the process of drawing, but the process of starting the idea. And then how do you do a Kickstarter? And how do you do the publishing? And how, how do you get it done? This is not just a great promo for their book, but if you are an independent creator, you're going to get a lot of stuff out of this interview because they talk about the nuts and bolts of putting a book together and getting it out to people. Um, the Kickstarter that they, they are promoting for the new Case File Arkham book is already funded, but they've got great stretch goals. Um, you're going to love this interview. I really enjoy when I sit down to talk with the crew, and um, I, I hope you enjoy it too. And you guys got a new book that uh, by the time this goes up, I think either probably Thursday if I get Wednesday night free. If not, it'll be next week. But it looks like uh, your book's going to be funded by Wednesday. Well, I hope. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. That uh, you can help put us over the finish line and maybe help us uh, get to those stretch goals. I think that's what we're going to do. But what I wanted to talk about first was you guys put in a ton of pre-work before your Kickstarters. And I've seen Kickstarters from people who've been in the comic business for 20, 30 years that either barely make it or don't make it. And you guys, when you come out with something, it just explodes. You've got Twitter and Facebook and everything else, and people are sharing, and you really ramp it up. What goes into the pre-work? Because I know it's not just, ah, there it is. You guys do a lot of prep beforehand. Yes. Uh, well, Cat has his bullwhip. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I got to break that up. Yeah. And then when she's done using it, we get to work because uh, <laughs> that's just the fun part. <laughs> Good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> well, honestly, um, you know, besides the fact that we're offering awesome books uh we want to give people stuff to talk about we want to give people things to show and to go ooh and ah and go wow look at that and really draw the audience in to the kickstarters it's not enough just to say hey look here's my book yo back it we want to give people a reason to back it, a reason to talk about it. Um, and so that's why we have so much on our Kickstarters, not only the, the Kickstarter itself, but, you know, showing people, like like, like with current one, uh, uh, Case File Arkham, uh, Her Blood Runs Cold, uh, we've got 
Patrick's amazing artwork. We've got five pages up. Well, that's always been a firm belief of mine that if you're going to do a Kickstarter and you're going to ask someone to get behind you, you better have a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. You better be be able to show them, yes, these people are up to the task. Or, yes, it's already started. Uh, So many of those Kickstarters out there, you know, it's usually a video of a guy looking into the camera saying, it's been my dream to do this, and when you give me the money, I'm going to hire an artist, or I'm going to start drawing it. Here's a concept picture of my, my character. And, you know, okay, no offense, but... If you're going to ask somebody to get behind you, you better give them a really good reason to believe in you. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it doesn't matter if it's your, your first project or your 50th project. There's always going to be that newcomer who's never seen your stuff before, who's never even come across your stuff before, who doesn't know how awesome you are, and you're always pitching to that person as well as the people who come back again and again and again and continually reaffirming to those people as well that you are still you know, behind the books and you're still offering the same quality, if not better quality, than when they first found you. And one of the other things that Zero One Publishing has done is you deliver, and you don't just deliver, oh, you know, we said we're going to put out this book, and we put it out. But the books usually are better than what you when, than what you uh, say they're going to be. That's who we're obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick and I are perfectionists. We can't help it. Oh, my gosh. The, well, the first case file, Arkham, we over-delivered by... A dramatic amount of pages. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 40, 45 extra pages. Mm-hmm. Which was amazing. But also, if you're going to be late, you're giving people updates bef- far before the deadline. Whereas, I'm not going to name names, but there's a comic creator out there who uh, had his Kickstarter get uh, funded, and two years later, he's still just not answering people's emails and ignoring them and everything. And I bet if he were to start a second Kickstarter, it it would probably draw less money than if I were to stand outside and try to sell tacos. Well, that's the <laughs> other thing is trust. In, in an uh, environment where people are giving you money to do your project, they're paying in advance, trust is everything. Well, on, I, I when I launch a Kickstarter, I see the the people who the you know, the backers as investors. They are investing in the project and I want to make sure they get their money's worth. And investors in in business, they want updates. They want to know what their money went to. They want to know, you know, what's taking so long or, you know, if you're ahead of schedule, which would be even better. And so, yes, if something comes along, I feel that it I am I owe it to the backers to tell them what's going on, to give them status updates, to uh, you know, just basically you know, to make sure that everybody is on the same page, and again, to keep up trust and, on, honestly, uh, transparency. And there really needs to be more of that. And, uh, you know, if I could uh, go at it from another direction, too, because we had a similar conversation on another podcast from another direction, which is that some, uh, some folks doing Kickstarters uh, feel they have to have the entire project completed first. 
and before they do the Kickstarter, or at least really close to completion. And we don't go that direction either. We're, we're, we've got a really good sweet spot where we have everything planned. We have you know our entire a business plan, plan of attack. It's all ready to go. Uh, we've got designs and art. But uh, I, I think the way we're doing it is pretty smart because we're we're essentially saying you know we we. We aren't a big publisher with Hollywood money or something like that, so we need some pre-sales to fund what we're going to do. So we've got that trust with them that they know we're going to do it, but we aren't crazy enough to try to do it <laughs> all in advance because I think that gets a more professional product, frankly. Uh, they can pay artists like me uh, a good a good wage. I mean, I'm not getting rich or anything. I'm not getting Marvel money, but on the other hand, they're someday, paying me. Someday. <laughs> <laughs> someday. But they are paying me as much or more as any independent comic book uh, publisher, and that's because of the way we're doing these Kickstarters. The other thing about the Kickstarter that I'm finding very fascinating is you're not even bothering with Diamond. You don't need to go through Diamond. Mm -mm. You're doing Kickstarter. You're doing Amazon. I think, aren't all of the Zero One books available on Amazon at this point? Yeah, every single one is through Amazon. Uh, we also distribute through Baker & Taylor, which uh, allows our books to be in bookstores uh, worldwide, actually. Um, I also uh, have distribution through Ingram, so... And digital on uh, Comixology. Yeah. yeah, digital through Comixology, definitely. So you're kind of showing that you can get around what I call the, the current structure. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and because your stuff is more aimed at general readers, I think it's a smarter strategy to get into like a Barnes & Noble or a local bookstore rather than try and make it through uh, previews because when I pick up previews it's it's an ugly it's an ugly catalog that you can't find stuff in it's, it's well, daunting that's for sure <laughs> the sheer number of comic book store owners who have flat out said you know I don't even read anything beyond DC and Marvel in the catalog after that I just throw it away yeah mm -hmm. why bother and, and that is the thing is previews it, does serve a function, but it primarily is for comic book stores and comic book store owners. Comic book stores, I love LCSs, I love doing business with them, but they are only one part of the market. The, there, there's a vast um, you know, amount of the market that I think a lot of uh, comic book people who do it on their own uh, don't touch because they, they have it in their mind that diamond is the end-all be-all. And really, it's not. There are, uh, there are tons of ways to get your stuff out there, to get it seen, to get it into stores um, without previews. Especially if you're trying to reach new audiences. Mm -hmm. Yes. And your books, like World War Kaiju and The Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, and now the two um, Case File Arkhams, to me, those are very mainstream books. Oh, really? They, they, yeah, <laughs> they hit, you know... They hit people who are going to go through a bookstore. Oh, I like detective novels, or I like horror novels, or I like this, or I like that. Whereas comic shops, Joe and I love them. You know, we talk about them all the time. But if you're not a superhero book, at least half the comic book shops, the people who go in there aren't even going to know that you exist, and they won't even go down to that end of the aisle. Right. Mm -hmm. And we've we've all talked forever about growing the market. 
you guys are just, you're growing the market, and I wanted to also touch on the fact that every so often I hear that one of your books is on the Amazon bestseller list. Yeah, we pop up there sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how do you celebrate that other than putting the, the bullwhip away? She kisses me? I, <laughs> I think you got it wrong, Corey. That's when she breaks out the bullwhip. <laughs> Take a, you know, you know, break out the champagne and then uh, beat the drum even louder. Honestly. <laughs> and go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, uh, you know, that's you know, seeing that it's up there. That's when you know, that, that's when you got to shout even louder, honestly, and get the word out even more. It's like, hey, look, you know, Amazon thinks we're this awesome. <laughs> go check it out. Yeah, that that's that's a lot of marketing is uh finding those good excuses to uh remind people that you exist. Uh and rather than just in, incessantly reminding them for no reason, hey, look, now we've got a reason today. <laughs> and uh, I I think on a deeper level, um there is a um highly highly successful uh author, actually an author of sci-fi novels whose name will not be mentioned on air who had echoed something that a lot of editors in comics had echoed to me, which was, well, look around the con, see what everyone's buying, that's what you need to do if you want to be successful, otherwise no one gives a shit about your work. And I'm saying it nicely, it was a much more brutal <laughs> statement than that. And my, my my takeaway from that was like, no, uh other audiences deserve comics too, mm-hmm. you know. We shouldn't just be selling comics to one audience. I mean, people who want, you know, noir, or kaiju, or, you know, you know, just what, gritty horror, mm-hmm. should have the right to be able to find or have, have books catered to them. The idea that everyone should just be crammed the same one flavor, or you're an idiot is such a backward way of thinking. And it limits, it doesn't just limit the, the, the genres that people have, but in some ways it really limits the market. Yes. I, um, one of the things that got me really excited when I was looking through previews is that Titan Books, who publishes Hard Case Crime, is going to be doing some crime comics in that same genre. You guys are kind of melding genres mm-hmm. so that you can grab two different audiences for this stuff. And I wanted to talk a little about the sequel, because Case File Arkham came out, was very successful. World War Kaiju was also successful. But you've gone with Case File Arkham for the the next book. What went into the decision to go with that one rather than... The, the the kaiju sequel that I wanted, he said sadly. Sorry. <laughs> well, you're pa- you're part of the problem, Corey. You you you. Re- oh, I am always part of the problem. You are you know that. an integral part of the problem because you reviewed it so well. And frankly, we've never had a book reviewed like this before. So well, it's so consistently just top marks. And so, uh, yeah, you you can you can take a lot of the blame. You, you uh, screwed yourself here. It was the book everybody really wanted. Uh, seriously, it was the book everybody wanted. And um, 
people reacted well to kaiju. People liked kaiju. Kaiju sold quite well. Still does, actually. Yeah, still does. And, you know, you know that second script is written. And yep. there's even some pages done. Yeah, we want to go with that one day soon. But uh, people are beating down our door for the second book, and um, I, I don't know exactly what it was. I know that we were at a convention, and uh, the uh, Case File Arkham books were just flying off the table. I think it was uh, Emerald City. It was Emerald City. And Patrick um, saying, I can't wait to do another one. And I said something to the effect of, you know, I was really sick of this book, but you know, two weeks later, I've already got an outline for the next one. Oh, you're, you're being modest. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the day they put it to bed. The day they put the first case file Arkham to bed. No, my attitude when we put it to bed was, <laughs> I'd worked nine months, and I'll be up front, it was a very tough book for me to write. I mean, I the, the amount of obsession that went into getting it just right, um, it was like spending nine months bashing my head into a wall, but it turned out good uh really my end result was like fuck this book okay i'm gonna take a book. fuck this book no, no here's the thing he, that that was josh's words he's like yo I, I i need a break from it i need to take a step back the very next day he and patrick were on skype for four hours talking about <laughs> this book now of, you know her blood runs cold they were already planning it you know, plotting what was going to happen in the very next day. Well, I was in a half-awake state, and the thought came into my mind, and I started writing it down. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to uh, rejoin it really quickly, too, because, uh, yeah, this was, well, this was something Josh and I, you know, we we came up with a world and characters and just a, a way to do uh, horror uh, noir story that we think is is totally new, and it's like every time we we visit it in any way, we just get really excited. And I think in some ways we're kind of we we feel like uh, you know explorers. Yes. <laughs> We've got this well, new world in front of us that that people have kind of kind of known what was there, but they've never really explored it the way we're doing. And maybe that sounds egotistical, but I think we really hit on something that that works, and it works for our strengths, too. It works for the way Josh writes, and it definitely is... Uh, it doesn't work for the way I've always done art. It's just a new way for me to do it, so that's exciting, too. I've never done this black-and-white line art before, um, and that excites all of my little brain cells. Do you mind? Do you mind me uh, stepping? In? I hope I'm not being too bold. This was kind of our dream project that we always wanted to do, right? Yeah, I think so. Because I, I had wanted to do something, uh, period, and with detectives and horror and that sort of thing before. And I know we're both huge fans of both of these genres. I mean, really big fans to the yes. point where we. <laughs> <laughs> we we listen to the old uh, radio plays incessantly from the era, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, it was a dream project. We just never really knew quite how to make that dream come true. And, I just know that we even, even when you and I were discussing Kaiju and we first started working together and had no idea if we were going to work well or not, we were talking about doing this, this mm -hmm. uh, 
hard-boiled noir story that was real hard-boiled noir first with horror elements. Yeah, you hadn't quite uh, settled on the, the Lovecraft angle, but I do remember the two of you uh, discussing, you know, merging that, that, that hard, you know, Marlowe-esque style detective story with some form of horror. Yeah, I mean, I came up really early on. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know at that time I was going to, uh, you know, explore uh, black and white ink style. Uh, I'll tell you something interesting, Corey, though, something that uh, got my uh, blood really going uh, in this direction was those pa- pages uh, we discussed uh, for uh, the Second World War Kaiju book that we'd started doing. Um, there's... Uh, Anyone who's picked up World War Kaiju knows that I sort of do a lot of different styles in it. It's mostly a kind of a painted uh, style, but then I'll I'll slip into different eras of comics and uh, you know do, do little segments uh, in a completely different way. And so one of the ones uh, in this uh, these new pages was in a very hard black and white style, kind of an Alex Raymond uh, or Al Williamson look to it and it was funny that hasn't come out yet <laughs> but but when we did it i was thinking wow i could do a whole book like this <laughs> this inking stuff's kind of fun actually it's not only fun you're really good at it <laughs> oh thank you one of the questions i wanted to ask is there were a lot of pulp horror writers around the time of lovecraft mm-hmm why do you think it is that Lovecraft still resonates while everyone else faded away from that time? Even even writers who were far more popular um, in the pulps and in pop fiction dime novels, they've all sort of faded away, whereas Lovecraft seems to never really fade. Well, Howard it always remained. seems to permeate. Well, Robert E. Howard, but, you know, Sax Romer, good luck finding any of the Fu Manchu novels. They're not around. Yeah. Um, Burroughs still resonates, but I think a lot of that's because of all the movies and everything. Yeah, sci-fi, sci-fi writers like him, that's why. Yeah. Uh, I've got a few theories on the subject. I've actually thought about that. Josh probably has some ideas, too. I think, uh, for me, the main theory that resonates uh, in in my mind at least, is uh, the idea of timelessness. Uh, and that is that his stories are not horror of that era. You know, they're, they're horror that can exist outside of that era completely. And so it, it, it ages very well from that point of view. But also, I'd say his prose style was anachronistic even in the 30s. <laughs> it, it it's it sort of is a a prose style that uh in a way he's sort of hearkening back to an earlier era you know uh lord dunsinay or ambrose bierce uh but in a way that it had never really been done before he's just kind of a pastiche of his idea of something that's out of time and i think because of that it reads now not like other prose of the 1920s or 30s, and so it do- doesn't ever really seem dated because it was never it never had a date to begin with. Um, 
I would also say another reason that Lovecraft has endured is probably uh, three things. And first and foremost is he, more than anyone else, was really the first writer to uh, revolutionize or change the concept of what horror is. Primary to, pri- uh, prior to that, Western horror was always from a, um, well, essentially kind of a, a Judeo-Christian uh, mindset of, you know, the monster... Uh, good and evil, the monster gets slayed, the battle of uh, the devil, and you know it, it. It always kind of had that sort of underpinning to it, that sort of a um, set of morals and thematic arc. And Lovecraft was the first to really, con- you know, on such a broad scale, come in and embrace this world where the old religions really began to cease to function. And I mean, I believe that's one of the reasons he is so popular today is right now we're at a time in which the old religions are at incredible odds with the world and the world we live in. We, You know, science was demystifying God and, you know, explaining the universe and uh, industrialization had changed so many things and there was so much uncertainty. And, you know, and at that point he really spoke to this fear that you didn't matter, that the, that time was forever, time would go on, you're a blip. And he was also this, you know, he wasn't just racist, he was scared of everything. <laughs> he was terrified of everything, and it was certain everything he was, was going he, he was panphobic. Oh, <laughs> yes, he was. He was sure everything was out to get him. And he... Uh, it was expressing that that kind of fear and that doom he felt in, in his work. You know, and that uh, that was one of the reasons it endured. And these ideas were incredible. He he put together this sort of atheist pantheon of uh, gods, alien gods, and uh, beings that weren't necess- You know, didn't really fit into the concept of angels and devils and demons and. Um, a creator god and a cre- none of that really fit into the world he'd created and often flew right in the face of it and he would often view that as some sort of cruel joke on humanity that oh we thought we were god's perfect creatures but really we're just the genetic experiment of these elder thing creatures that inhabited the earth before time you know but um that was the one thing that i think really is why he continues to resonate that said, he may have been utterly forgotten if it hadn't been for the fact that so many writers liked him and then took his work and gave it their own spin. You know, Robert Block, Harlan Ellison, Stephen King. Um, the list is just huge. And, jeez, uh, just about every 1950s and 60s movie at some point robbed him blind. So... <laughs> Well, he he very famously was kind of the first open source writer. Yes, by accident. He did because I've heard that he didn't want the copyright on on this mythos, or that it was accidental. Either way, it even um, Robert E. Howard used the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, he, other writers at the time used it. Yeah, and uh, Howard were were huge. Uh, uh, cor- correspondence with each other by uh, mail, and uh, he he 
told Robert E. Howard, go right ahead and use my mythos. And he you did know, very well. I think in some yeah. ways better, in some ways better than uh, Lovecraft because it, to to me, at least, uh, I don't know if everybody has this uh, thought. He's, he's a, uh, Robert E. Howard was a far better uh, writer just of, of prose and of plot than uh, Lovecraft. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. And I think Howard also, one of the things that has helped him, his work, other than the fact that you know he got on with some really good marketing people long after he died, was everything had an immediacy to it. There was no wasted words in anything I've ever read by him. Now, when other people add stuff, it doesn't work as well, but Howard always, his work almost reads like he doesn't have enough time to tell the story. He's he's the anti-Lovecraft uh, in many ways, because <laughs> Lovecraft uh, sort of it invites the reader to, uh, you know, roll these sentences around in their head and uh, try them out on their tongue and just slowly absorb a story, whereas Robert E. Howard just hits you over the head with the action, even when he's being creepy. Now, one of the things I also wanted to ask about, Zero One Publishing's been around for a while, and I wanted to bring Kat into this. When you started Zero One Publishing, you kind of had a vision, and over the last year, there's been a lot of growth. Has this been part of the plan, or is it growing faster than you thought it would? Um, actually, I am very happy. Uh, uh, in my mind, we're right on schedule, actually. Um, the idea behind Zero One was that uh, we would always grow uh, every year, you know, adding more and more people or at least more and more titles. And my one rule was that uh, quality could never be sacrificed. Um, so, you know, it didn't matter, you know, for some reason uh, we could only afford to do like, you know, one or two titles a year. Well, as long as the quality was the same, that was all that was what important and I am so happy that we are being able to grow and like we we've uh, added uh, Nicole Cushing to um our uh, catalog, Nicole, this year uh, won the uh, Stoker Award for her book, uh, Mr. Suicide, and we are very happy to have been able to bring her on. We're publishing her book, uh, The Sadist Bible, which actually we'll be launching a Kickstarter for at the end of this month. So, wow. um so you're going to be on all the podcasts again? Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's a prose book actually. Um, yeah, so we do do prose as well as graphic novels. Um, but uh, I I love this book because of the reactions that people have with it. Um, Nicole Cushing, Goddess of Darkness. Yeah, Nicole pushes <laughs> boundaries so beautifully. And makes people uncomfortable in ways where everybody I've ever had come back to me talking about her book, um, which is a uh, very uh, uh, blasphemous. In, in uh, it takes place in uh, um, in Indiana in a very religious area, and uh, everybody has come back disturbed but wanting more. <laughs> And I think that you you can't ask for better reactions like that. Well, we asked for. Uh, I asked her. I said, "Send us what no one else will publish." Yeah. Yeah, that was the thing. I was like, "What what won't people touch?" And uh, just fell in love with it. 
And and I'll admit, you know, even myself, I had a a very you know strong reaction to it when I first read visceral. it. And it's, yeah, a very visceral reaction, and it's one of those things where it's like if I'm reacting to it, I can't turn away. I have to publish this book. Um, really, the the, the I don't know. She's kind of begrudgingly began to accept this title or comparison. I don't know why. I mean, I would say that her material hits that same nerve that early Clive Barker did with Hellbound Heart. That okay. nobody since, including Barker himself, has really been able to hit that sort of... Uh, just, you know, sex, sadism, death, love, mm. just gut-wrenching. And, you know, there's actually very, very little gore in in in, the, in either book. Actually, Zeta's Bible doesn't have any gore. Yeah, but... people read it and think there is because they come back so warped by it. But, the, yeah, there's – it's all ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is the thing. It is, you know, zero one, our motto is, uh, you know, no safe space. That's exactly it. You know, we want to push buttons. We want to make people – question and feel things and push boundaries and um i think both books uh you know sadist bible again in a very visceral way and uh both case file arkham's i think uh push boundaries because uh with case file arkham it is a hard pi noir story but it also explores those really dark areas and it's not well it is a noir story yes but <laughs> what i i love is both you and patrick you don't pull punches i mean in um i'm not i don't think i'm giving anything away here in the in the first book a nightmare on the canvas um Yes, I have to start referring to them by their story titles now. It's great. <laughs> yes, it um, is great. Right. Uh, uh, you know, it, Nightmare on the Canvas uh, borrows from Pickman's model. And the scenes where Pickman is setting up his, uh, his models for his paintings, if you're familiar with Pick, the original Pickman's model story, uh, you two don't pull punches with him setting up those scenes. And... Uh, you know, they are quite horrific. Uh, I, I've had at conventions, uh, you know, even the most, uh, you know, diehard of horror fans, you know, flip through the book, see that and kind of go, whoa, and like immediately turn the page so that no little children can but see it. But they buy the book. <laughs> yeah, uh, they do buy the book. Our, our, our motto is, why show a dead baby if you're not going to have somebody eat it? You know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But, you know, the thing also is, is it's sparing. Mm-hmm. You, you never get numb to it because it is sparing. Yeah, it's not um, It's not a grindhouse horror. Yeah, if you're going to see something, it's because something bad happened. And there's a reason behind This isn't it. hostile. Or, no. Yeah. And, and visually, I've tried to, uh, as much as you can in a comic book, because obviously the the images linger in a comic in a way that they don't in a film. But my favorite horror films have, you know, little bits and pieces of the horror kind of flashed in for a few frames. Uh, Angel Heart's a good example of that, oh, yeah. uh, where it's either it's it, it's a shot setup that's confusing at first, and by the time you figure it out, it goes to something else, or it's just a few shots here and there. So I try to do that visually as much as I can in comics form. And and so 
I, I hope it kind of helps set, set it apart so that, yeah, we're not showing a, a page full of viscera, but we're showing something that you have to kind of look at and figure out and be a partner with me. You know, <laughs> you're, you're providing a lot of the horror, too, as the reader. Well, Patrick, one thing I love is that you really, you know, I, I love the fact that when you go to a new art style, you really research it. And it is obvious that you have learned watching, you know, all the old, you know, black and white noir films and how to use shadows and how to use the darkness to um, imply a lot more than is actually on the page. So again, the reader's imagination gets to fill in the blanks, and I love that about those pages. Well, that was part of the mission nice. statement. He and I talked about it. Mm-hmm. And I think if you go back, if you look at good horror comics, you don't remember the ones that have all the blood all over the page. It's the ones where something happens and you've put in what has happened. Mm-hmm. Because your imagination is far worse than anything the artist can put down, right. because it's going to be personal to you. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And with Zero One, as an editor, what are you looking for? I know you've done two anthologies and, and now the prose novel. What are you looking for, Kat, when someone submits something? Because we hear a lot from people trying to break into the business, but we've rarely hear an editor say if this is what I see I know that I've got something good here hmm that is a very good question it's always easiest to say what I don't want than rather than what I do want so that that is the thing uh, I will say that what I look for in a, a I'll be honest in an immediate oh nope sorry done uh, is Anybody who starts off with uh, popular TV show or movie A plus popular TV show <laughs> or movie B. Yeah, none of that. And every year there's a trend. Like uh, uh, Josh has mentioned. Yeah, it was an old hobby of mine. Yeah, you know, Josh actually in, in the past would go around and ask people, okay, what's your pitch? And if they, you know, it, the big one one year was it's Buffy but with. And then it was Walking Dead, but with. Yeah. And then it was Maleficent, but, but with. with. Yeah. Um, didn't get around too much this year, although I did hear lots of, you know, Frozen, but horror. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and uh, so it, it. Actually, no, no, no. I, you know, okay. You know the story, right, Corey? Yeah. Or I'll go around to a convention and I'll I'll basically see what the pitch of the year is to see what everyone's trying to push as the new in thing. And, you know, for a while it was a post-apocalyptic. Um, and, yeah, for the longest time it was Buffy with, then it was Walking Dead with, a uh, little bit of Twilight with, but not as much. Hunger Games with Hunger Games. Was, was a real popular one. Yeah, Hunger Games. Um. Well, screw it. I'll offend people. This year, the pitch was, my character's trans. Yep. That was the pitch. Yeah. That kind of surprises me that it's not some... Because when I look at the pop comics now, and I look, 
you know, just looking at Facebook today, two companies have announced we're going to have a shared superhero universe. Oh, oh, that Val- that trick never works. <laughs> well, and you got Valiant, which you know has been pushing their universe now for almost five years, still not gaining a lot of traction because I don't want to buy eight books. I don't want to buy nine books. Oh. I want to buy a book. Um, even. You know, when you look at movies, well, you know, we're going to do the Universal Monsters in a shared universe. We're going to do this in a shared universe. Monster Squad? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't mind a sequel to that, but no, there's, we're going to do a Frankenstein movie that will tie in with a mummy movie that will tie in with... The- yeah. Well, just cut to the chase and do Beetleborgs. <laughs> uh, or just cut to the chase and remake uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein's monster. There you go, yes. Leap over, get right to the fact where you've already gone into parody. Yes. Well, uh, you had asked what Zero One is looking for, and um, I've done a fair amount of, you know, it's Kat's company. She runs the show. She's the editor in the Uh, chief. I'll be honest, Josh is my talent scout. I do most of the scouting. And the way that I like to put it is that we're looking for vivid, visceral fiction something that has a kind of high on style. We're not a big fan of utilitarian prose. We'd like it to be heavy on style. Hence, we like noir, for instance. And um, a diversity of ideas. We don't want people who play it safe. Mm-hmm. And we don't even care if we agree with you or not. You know, it's, you know it, it should never be homogenous. No. We should be challenged. Well, again, say this Bible. Um, quite frankly, I felt ill. Uh, the first time I read it, and it's like I have to publish this because well, I got that reaction. Well, and it was good. And I mean, it, was it wasn't good. garbage. But. No, but that's the thing is, yes, uh, uh, yeah, we don't even have to agree with what you're saying. Just tell a story well. An era in which everyone is so hypersensitive about playing, you know, safe spaces and not offending everyone, and having you know the the uh, diversity buffet of uh, token characters. It's like no. Tell your story, tell it good, challenge the reader. Don't worry about any of that. Mm-hmm. I think the books that resonate are the ones where someone just wants to tell a story. Rather than how many of these movies that are supposed to be big temple movies have come out in the last three, four years that have flopped. I always point to Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Green Lantern's going to be the start of the DC universe in movies, and, and we've got, you know, we're planning out a, a quadrology and this and that. But when you watch it, it's a pilot for a TV show, and I don't want to pay $15 to watch a pilot. No. Especially when I don't know if the next episode's coming out. <laughs> yeah. Pilots are for you. They didn't even used to show pilots on TV. It would be, you give it to the network, the network watches it, says, okay, there's enough there, we could do a series. I always point to the Monsters. You ever seen the original Monsters pilot? Different actors, different no, feel, all that. of that. Hmm. But uh, I have, you know, there's the, of course, the famous uh, Star Trek, how the pilot yeah. isn't the pilot. Well, yeah. it's canon, though. Yeah, it is canon, but that's because they, they then worked it in. Yeah that two-parter yeah that's a good good point and it and it's interesting how much they changed mm-hmm. uh in that one yeah uh great green lantern is a is a good 
example of something where they were just trying to shove a tent pole down our throat. Ooh, that yeah. sounds sexual. <laughs> <laughs> let and me put that another move. way. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. That's probably, uh, let's see. Let me go. Uh, tent pole down your throat. Now, that, that web page is still free. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's definitely the pull quote for this uh, interview. <laughs> I think that was one of the things that I liked best about the the first case file Arkham. Yes, it's a first book. It didn't feel like a pilot. It was a complete story. Yeah, it was intended to be, too. The idea with uh, Arkham, case file Arkham, is, you know, there there is a linear timeline, but each story should be a standalone case. You can come in at any point. These are, you know, just like the detective novels. You don't need to follow the series, although we'd like you to. I wonder yes. I wonder if after all this uh talking we should uh, explain the concept a little bit uh, just from you know uh a mile up the concept the elevator pitch <laughs> well not even Let's... not even the pitch but I I'm just going to since we've we've just spent 10 minutes trashing pitches so <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> there's a difference between a pitch that's um, it's like Captain America, except he's from England. Yes. <laughs> so, and when you go, I, I often tell the story, the first uh, uh, comic, not convention, but retailer summit I went to, there was um, the, uh, Don Simpson, Megaton Man, Border him. Worlds, yeah. and of course, Wendy Whitebread, Undercover Slut. <laughs> I have to work that in as much as I can. But he would be there at his table, standing in front of his table, in a suit, and if you made eye contact, you were going to find out about Border Worlds. And by God, when you left, you were ordering Border Worlds. (laughs) So let's say we're walking by your table right now. We look down. We see Case File Arkham. We see the five pages. Sell me this book. It's, uh, it's Detective Noir meets H.P. Uh, Lovecraft Horror, and it is a, a world where uh, Chandler wrote Lovecraft's fiction. Yeah, what uh, if H.P. Lovecraft, or what if Chandler wrote stories in Lovecraft's world? And I'd like to step back then and say uh, our, our concept was uh, that we wanted to do uh, something by Lovecraft, but both Josh and I were kind of uh, hesitant to do a do a story where the hero is always uh, fainting and going insane. Uh, <laughs> and then it occurred to us that our, our other uh, you know big love was detective noir, you know, hard boiled detective fiction, where you know if if uh, one of uh, Chandler's characters saw a tentacle creature, he he fill it full of lead. (laughs) 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 Marlowe would not faint. (laughs) Lovecraft characters, the story happens to them. They're they're very much not active participants in the world. The world happens to them and then they die or they go insane. You know, P.I. fiction, noir, you know, it's a very masculine genre. These are guys who are just going to put their nose right in the center of the action, whether it gets them killed or not. They're going to drive that story forward. That's right. And so the one thing uh, listeners uh, wouldn't have gotten from what we've said so far, but I think it's a, it's a, 
kind of a clever and interesting thing that we're doing in this, is that we're taking actual Lovecraft stories, like our first book, it was Pickman's, Pickman's Model, and then recasting it as a, uh, a piece of more fiction. Uh, so it sort of happens on the peripheries of the story that's there, and it's got characters from Pickman's model, but we've, we've thrown our, our character, uh, Hank Flynn, private investigator, into the middle of all this, and he's got some crazy past that involves uh, Lovecraftian horrors as well that he's sort of just discovering and learning about it himself. Uh, but uh, he's uh, solving the case of uh, Pickman, <laughs> the missing yeah. artist. And, and in a way, you could think of it almost as a, uh, a sequel, but you could also think of it as just something that's happening on the peripheries. Something I, I've, I've mentioned several times, but I usually get a blank stare, is uh, if you've ever seen Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, it's a, oh, I adore that place so much. <laughs> well, this is very much like that. You know, uh, it it could be that Pickman's model is happening, you know, in other parts of the world while this is also going on. So I, I love that that aspect of it, and we're doing that again in Her Blood Runs Cold. Well, one thing that I really like now now I am speaking as a fan and not as a you know the uh, publisher. Uh, one thing I really like that you two do with these stories is it's not simply just a PI in the story. It's in um, in Nightmare on the Canvas. You guys actually have Hank interview Thurber. From you know, Thurber is it's Thurber, right? Yeah, Thurber is the narrator from from Pikmin, and so you actually have you know where, where Thurber is in the original story is just talking to whoever the audience, no, his reader, friend, you know, his friend. Um, you guys actually have a scene with with Hank Flynn sitting down with Thurber, and the dialogue is the story is actually, you know, the tale that Thurber is telling. And I love that you're you're carrying that into um, Her Blood Runs Cold as well. So again, you know, it, it, it ties everything together. It's more like you're you're getting the the overall arcing story that Lovecraft told but from a different perspective. And so it, it allows for un, um, unreliable narrator. It allows for again, you know, um, uh, oh, Rashomon, you know, stories yeah. oh, yeah. from different perspectives. And I, I love that, that you guys do that. Thank you. And I have to point out something brilliant Josh did in that scene, in fact, where uh, yeah. uh, we're, we're talking to uh, the narrator from the original Pickland's model, and he says a lot of the same things that he said in the original story. But when he says something... Uh, about not wanting to go to the police, then you jump in and suddenly give it the detective noir twist where the detective starts strong arming him. Oh, you don't want to go to the police, do you? You got something to hide? You know, I don't think so, but the police are going to want to know. <laughs> that was just, you know, wham. It just, it, it tied the two uh, genres together perfectly. That was actually the first scene I wrote for the whole thing, actually, was that ah. back and forth. <laughs> that, and, that was really worked out great. 
<laughs> I'm finding with this next one that it's kind of I'm doing a similar thing where one of the first scenes I'm having to put together is taking the narrator from a thing on the doorstep and having Flynn talk to him. And what do we get from him? What do we don't? What else goes elsewhere? But yeah, just two genres go head to head right there. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I, I not to not to toot our own horn, but I'm already sounding like a brass band. So uh, yeah, I think we're doing that, blending these two genres uh, better than in a way that nobody's ever thought to do before. I think so. Well, again, <laughs> at, at the core, I mean, it was really important to me to, to make this play and feel like it really did come from the 40s. Like it was a 40s noir film written and shot in the 40s that just happens to have Lovecraft elements. Um, in my mind, it is a noir story first with horror elements in the background. Uh, so, you know, the Lovecraft P.I. thing has been done a lot. And Supernatural P.I. has been done a lot. But almost always, and I've said this in a lot of interviews, it almost always comes off as more of less a P.I. and more of a monster hunter thing or a buffet thing. Yes. Or the P.I. is a wizard. or He already knows about all this. Flynn doesn't know anything about the Supernatural. He doesn't know. This is all a shock to him. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was going to ask Josh, in a you know, if you're doing a done in one book, your character is on a journey. You know, they they start here, they end here, they change through the story. Yes. When you do a series of books, there are many ways to do that. Um, for me, my favorite series is the Travis McGee series. Travis doesn't change through the books. And it makes it hard when you read the books in rapid succession because you're like, wow, this guy's had a whole bunch of horrible shit happen to him. And he's the same guy. Whereas uh, my favorite pulp series, the Remo Williams Destroyer series, when Will Murray took it over, he had the character grow book to book, build to um, revelations, um, kind of what what they call unlocking the ghosts of his past. Yeah. As you're doing this second book, how are you balancing that? Because you've got the, the, the past of the character that you don't want to give away yet, but you also don't want it to be where everything, you know, where he starts and ends in the same place when he's seen these horrific things. Well, um, okay, I, I guess this is the part where I give you a very long answer, so I apologize to my other two uh interviewees here for uh, hogging the mic and starting the timer now (laughs) where I also probably come off as a complete pretentious ass writer but whatever I guess that's my job Um, the thing with uh, Flynn and you know this comes across in just about everything I do whether I try or not oh oh, yeah okay yeah that is the Josh Finney trademark I have yet to write something where where it doesn't involve puke somewhere Uh, (laughs) No, seriously, I seriously, uh, you look at every story I've written, at some point there is a, a mention of, or more likely, a shot of somebody puking. I totally um, got to draw a puke. Yes. 
Boy, I'm glad that my signature is much, much easier. It's just when the character says, I think we're done here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, have them throw up and then say that. (laughs) Now we're done. But uh, getting into uh, the character of Hank Flynn, the P.I., he is a, he's a war vet, and I really wanted to honor the fact that, you know, those the experience of the young men in World War II were, were intense. They, they, they went to war as boys. They didn't really experience the uh, teen years that they should have gotten, and they came back to a world that was totally changed. Everything was different. And, you know, they, they, you, it was a theme that shows up a lot in the original noir films, is these guys thought oh, you know, we were making a better world. I mean, actually, I just watched Key Largo a couple nights ago, and the guy, Bogart almost all but says, you know, we were going to war to get rid of people, gangsters like you. Here you are running things. Um, And I wanted that theme to be apparent in the first book, was this guy had, you know, spent, you know, three years in the mud getting shot at, seeing death and horror, he comes back to think he's going to get his job and his wife and his picket fence, and the world's just as dark and just as messed up, uh, and in ways he could never have even imagined. As a, he can never, you can never come home. Um, so that your listeners know, uh, at, at the age of 19, me, I, Josh Finney, the writer, uh, was caught in an act of random violence. Uh, somebody went berserk in Riverside, California, started shooting, and I got shot. I took a a bullet in my back, it got stuck in my stomach, and was pulled out of me. Um, And I'm not even going to claim I know what it's like to go to war. What I experienced is nothing compared to what those boys did uh, in, in World War II. But my own journey of having to come to terms with that no safe space that you know, at any moment, you know, it could all be pulled away in five seconds. Um, and that there's really nothing you can do to prepare yourself. I mean, you can prepare, you can think about it, but at the end of the day, it's out of your hands. And your uh, sense of what is normal is ramped up to, to 11 and has no place in day-to-day society. On that level, I, I came to kind of relate to his struggle, and I put a lot of that on the page for Flynn. Uh, just his is a lot worse than mine could ever be. And so in that sense, the post-traumatic stress, you know, the symbolism and that going on was kind of part of his journey, was finding his new uh, normal, his new state of grace uh, within this city that's a lot darker and a lot more screwed up than he ever knew. And, um, you know, along the way, he meets this incredible woman. I mean, just an amazing woman who's brilliant, strong, you know, way, you know, he way underestimates her um, on that journey. And I leave the story is that he realizes, you know, I thought the world was done with me, that I was a man who was, with no future, and now I realize I have a future, I just don't know what it is, is the, where I leave him in the first book, that the future's uncertain, but he's got direction. And he even says at the end of the first book, the biggest mystery is me. What am I? Where am I going? Um, and where does this all lead? And also realizing that the supernatural exists, that the world is a lot bigger and more complex 
than he could ever imagine. And those are kind of the driving forces. Also, the other theme of that first book was uh, what makes a monster. And I don't want to give it away because, you know, he's having to deal with horrible things he did during the war and saying, well, what makes me any different than this madman Pikmin who's doing terrible things? What's the difference? And he sort of finds out. I mean, even then, you're, you, you can tell he's still not entirely sure, but he's figuring it out. Um, and I owe a lot of that. A lot of that would have been impossible without Patrick's um, ability to do fa- facial expressions. And those sorts of scenes are critical. Uh, the way I see it, I'm kind of the I'm, I'm the script writer and I do some of the layout. But Patrick's kind of the director and every actor and the lighting tech and all that. So, you know, in a lot of ways, he had to make those work. And I, that's one of the reasons I have such incredible respect for Patrick as an artist, that he can do that level of complexity. This is not just a uh, assembly line DC comic look where there's a set number of expressions. And some of those ambiguous looks Flynn gives in those dark moments are critical. So anyway, that first book is, what's the difference between a man and a monster? Am I a man? And... I do have a future. What is it? Right. And it's kind of an upbeat ending in a degree. I mean, there's a lot of confusion, but he he's hit his state of grace. The second book, um, I had originally thought the theme was going to be uh, what is evil and that might show up. But as the script comes together, it's more about um, what is love really? What is healthy love? What is unhealthy love? And it's Flynn learning to trust. Because one thing I can tell you after you experience extreme trauma, like nearly dying, um, and, you know, again, not to go on too much about my own past, but, you know, for me, I was shot, I was hit with that realization that I may only be here for a few more minutes. And everything I know and everything I value will be gone. I will be gone. I will be nothing. And, um, you know, I didn't have some fun religious experience that gave me hope. Uh, You know, I came out of it even more of an atheist, um, which in itself is, uh, I don't know. I was an atheist before. Now I'm really, I'm more convinced of it. But, you know, that's a little disconcerting, too. Um, but you deal with it, you come to adapt. But one thing is, is after you experience that level of trauma, you have a hard time trusting. It takes a long time to trust. And so in this second book, Flynn's personal growth is about trusting, learning to trust. Who can you trust? Who can't you trust? Uh, there's going to be a lot of people not, not being what they seem, People with skeletons in their closet, everyone's dark past, and, uh, you know, who are people really? Um, And, you know, maybe this sounds like a word jumble at this point, but there's a lot of parallels between, um, or not parallels, or juxtapositions, nice artsy word. There's going to be a lot of juxtapositions between Hank and this woman, Glinda, yeah, Hank's a Catholic, and Glinda is a Druid. Not, not some new agey, fluffy, hippie, uh, uh, <laughs> pagan Wiccan. She is a Druid, you know, in the old sense. And um, so uh, him being a Catholic, there's some real conflict there, but he loves this woman, and she loves him. 
And it's him learning to trust her, if he can trust her, and their love. And it is constantly going to be juxtapositioned with this uh, character, Derby, and this um, kind of uh, femme fatale vamp um, who uh, he's gotten hooked up with. And uh, their love. Is it healthy? Is it love? What does it mean? And so you get a lot of back and forth between that. And how those two are tied in is, um, I don't know, if I explain why uh, Flynn is investigating Derby and, uh, and his woman, it would uh, give it all away, so I can't say. But, yeah, there's a lot of back and forth between those two relationships. Oh, and anybody who's uh, interested, I'll jump in for a moment, uh, and says, oh, that sounds really cool. Well, you can meet uh, Derby and our femme fatale in uh, the preview pages that are on our Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The beautiful art by Patrick, as always. Uh, Oh, another thing is, is just to bring up, too, is that, um, you know, Hank, you know, Classic noir, uh, I'm just going to say it, is a very masculine genre. You know, the women are women, you know, the men are men, and, you know, the the world's gritty, dirty, and uh, the only things that won't kill you are cigarettes and booze. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Now, my definition of noir actually comes a little different. Noir, to me, is your character makes a bad choice. And every choice after that makes it worse. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's definitely a, an element. Especially because I, I, you know, you're watching the Key Largo and, and the higher end. I'm watching more the B stuff. Oh, those are the good ones. Those are the where <laughs> you know, you know, the guy, the guy wants to impress the girl, but he doesn't have any money, so he robs where he works. And then he's trying to cover it up and and finding out that the girl was just using him. And as you go through, the character cannot make a good choice. Is this Scarlet Street? Um, uh, Actually, it was one of the hard case crime novels. I can't remember. But they all seem to have that same sort of thing where no matter what, you're going to make the wrong choice. Like Detour. Yeah. Yes. One of my favorites. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yes. That is definitely an element, is you're fucked. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that, Which works with the Lovecraft part, too, yes. very, very well. But, well, and uh, there is a difference between uh, the detective noir and a, a lot of just the classic film noir plots, because if it is a detective noir, you, you usually have a flawed character uh, with an inner... Uh, an inner core of goodness, and it, it, the tension is what's going to come out, you know, which side of him is going to win. Whereas in a lot of other uh, noir that doesn't revolve around a detective, uh, it, it's uh, the fatal flaw, and then just that runaway freight train to how does he, yeah. how does he crash at the end? So, and what's that Chandler line about? You know, on the dark, mean streets is a man neither. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's basically the world's horrible, and this person is our close to a hero as we're going to get in this horrible world yeah. that we're in. So there's all sorts of this stuff. And to bring Patrick in, um, one of the things about World War Kaiju was you tried all these different styles, 
and then your influences in Case File Arkham, the first book. As you're starting to work through this, who are some of the artists that you're drawing on, not to copy, but for inspiration? Oh, well, definitely uh, in the first book, uh, it was uh, – I, I started with Alex Raymond um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was uh, era-appropriate. Um, he began to do a strip called uh, Rip Kirby in the late 40s. He's better known for Flash Gordon, but I think his his art really uh, hit its maturity and stride with Rip Kirby, which was in in some ways the first modern uh, detective story. Um, and his his black and white line work every day in the uh, newspaper was just beyond belief, just astounding stuff. So I started from there, and I thought, you know, what would it be like if Alex Raymond was trying to do horror and noir, which he didn't really do. I mean, Rip Kirby got into some noirish elements, uh, but that was fun. So what if somebody who couldn't draw as well as Alex Raymond tried to do <laughs> Alex Raymond uh, doing horror? Uh, there we go. That's my high concept for the art. <laughs> and then, of course, another uh, big uh, influence uh, for me was the uh, 1960s uh, Warren uh, publishing horror books, uh, Creepy, and then Eerie, and then Vamprella, um, which um, uh, just featured a, a plethora of great artists and a lot of artists from the EC era uh, only being reproduced without the garish color and on larger pages. So uh, a lot of it was amazing work, uh, you know, Joe, Joe Orlando and uh, Frazetta and Al Williamson, um, and so those were large influences as well. And actually, Al Williamson, uh, probably about uh, about a quarter way through Case File Arc, and, uh, the Williamson uh, influence became a lot more prevalent, uh, especially when I got into the battle sequence. For some reason, I just started channeling a lot of Williamson's line work, and that's that's kept up throughout. Uh, of course, I like to think I add a lot of my own stuff to this. It's not like I'm aping anybody. I'm just using those as jumping off points. Um, and now in the new book, uh, I'm getting a little bit away from the uh, Alex Raymond uh, classic solid black areas and doing more uh, shading that's probably... Uh, a bit more in the uh, vein of uh, Barry Windsor Smith. So I'm, I'm using more um, decorative uh, hatching lines. And that, that's coming in pretty nicely, too. And I'm using more hand, uh, hand-drawn textures. In the first book, I was having a lot of fun with uh, using Photoshop to to come up with brick textures and things like that. And I'm still going to be doing that in book two, but uh, I, I'm having fun just uh, hand-drawing more of them. So that, that, that'll give you a rough idea of where I'm at with the art. Well, we're, we've gone over an hour, so why don't you guys do the sales pitch, let them know what they can get, what the stretch goals are, and... Um, do the hard sell. Come on. You're on The Tonight Show. Jimmy Fallon's made you play beer pong or whatever stupid thing you've had to do, and now you get to push, push your upcoming project. Are you tired of reading books for kids? 
Are you tired of stuff that's just blatant pandering and jumping on bandwagons? Do you want something that's hard R, that's interesting, that's engaging, gripping, and intelligent? Buy this book. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know where you were getting with that. That was a good ending. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'd buy it. Well, again, uh, the book is Case File Arkham. The story is Her Blood Runs Cold. The first volume is Nightmare on the Canvas, which is available on Amazon, on the Zero One Publishing website, where all uh, graphic novels are sold. Or you can buy it along with your pre-order of uh, Her Blood Runs Cold, again, on Kickstarter. Uh, the link can be found on uh, Twitter, on uh on Facebook, on the Zero One Publishing website, or just do a search for Case File Arkham on Kickstarter. and as It'll be in the show notes, too. Yeah, yeah. Yes, thank you. And uh, yeah, as far as incentives go, because we love to... We don't just offer, you know, the, the generic stuff uh, for incentives. We like including things that are artifacts of the world. If uh, any of, uh, of uh, your listeners, Corey, uh, were part of the uh, World War Kaiju Kickstarter, you'll remember you know, we had um, you know, postcard correspondence with the characters and other things like that. Well, we've continued uh, that tradition with uh, Her Blood Runs Cold with a Case File Arkham, where you can actually get a shot glass a book of matches and a cocktail napkin from the Carcosa Lounge, which will appear in this book. Um, that is, uh, yeah, that's the uh, the new bar for this one. Um, in fact, uh, the 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 exclusive yellow room is is a uh, um, featured quite prominently in this book. Um, as well, you can get um, you can get Patrick to do artwork for you. Patrick is going to be offering uh, sketch commissions as well as a special sketch uh, uh, book plates. Um, Josh, in fact, is going to be uh, sketching a couple of book plates himself. And both Josh and Patrick are offering their own personal private, uh, was it one-hour session classes uh, through Skype. So um, artists out there or writers out there, if you wish to talk shop with both uh, Patrick and Josh, uh, now's your chance. I'm looking at some of these. Uh, you've got the ultimate Patrick McAvoy uh, collector set, which has the book, the poster, pinup prints, an, another print. Uh, let's see, a print of old Squidface himself, two sets of mini prints, a detective badge, a business card, a bookmark, a book plate, behind-the-scenes PDF, avatars. You guys load it up. <laughs> you load it up when you do this stuff. Well, again, you know, our backers are um, our investors, and we want to make sure our investors get their money's worth. Well, it's not just that we, yeah, you, we want you to get your money's worth, but we also want to make it very clear that if you're going to invest in the project beforehand, because you know, so often with these Kickstarters, and we've ran this and ran into this into the past, is how many people say, well, you know, I'll buy it after it funds. Well, we want to make sure if you help us before it funds, you know, if you're going to actually be part of the Kickstarter, you're going to get stuff that no one else can. Yeah, this is all uh, Kickstarter exclusive. And on some of the high-end stuff, you better hurry up because I'm looking. uh, Some of them have already actually sold out. 
Let's see. Uh, the the, the uh, Custom out. Ink Sketch Commission has sold out. There's uh, only, what, for the session with uh, Josh, there's only one left. So there's a lot out there. Um, head on over. Hit that Kickstarter. The first book was amazing. We gave it a solid review. Loved it on Crazy Comics and Stories, and I have no doubt that this one will be just as good. Thank you. So thanks, guys, and uh, we'll hear from you again soon. And there you go. That is my interview with the crew from Zero One Publishing. Uh, look at the show notes to see where that Kickstarter is. You can just go ahead and click on it. You can also click on the link for Zero One Publishing because they've got a lot of great books out. If you have not picked up World War Kaiju, you should do that. If you have not picked up the first Case File Arkham book, you should do that as well. The, everything they publish, I've enjoyed. They're putting out good quality product, and I think it helps that they're not whipping stuff out a constantly they're they're taking their time and putting together good work uh, a couple of notes about the podcast if you have not heard on other podcasts there there i had a few announcements the first is that solitaire rose radio is going bi-weekly that means this week you get solitaire rose radio next week you get novel cast starting a new novel called uh, do the job it is a detective novel set in the world of professional wrestling in the late 80s i really hope you'll go over and subscribe to that then next week will be another episode of solitaire rose radio and they'll go back and forth the other big announcement that i made at the uh, at lion con was that joe and i will be starting a new podcast and i will actually be uh, doing some episodes without joe and we haven't decided on a title yet but the title i'm starting with is series in review where we kind of go over comic series, mini-series, long-running series, and we do DVD commentary on the issues as they come out. I've got some really fun stuff planned, and uh, it's going to be starting sooner than you think. So look forward to that. The last announcement that I have made is that I am done with conventions. I have retired from the convention circuit. I did it... Um, kind of as a podcaster for a couple of years. Uh, I've been going to conventions for years and years and years, and I have decided that for the time being, I am not going to be going to comic conventions anymore, either as a guest or as a participant or as a uh, attendee. I'm taking a break so that I can concentrate more on the podcast, concentrate more on my creative work. Um, Joe is constantly giving me crap for it, and... Um, he gives me a lot more crap than you hear in the episodes because I'm starting to edit some of it out. But uh, So I would prefer that you email me. You could go ahead and email me at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com rather than come to meet me in person. So uh, we've got a lot of stuff coming up, crazy comics and stories. We're barreling toward episode 300. Episode 300 is coming. Solitaire Rose Radio, we're actually barreling toward episode 100. Novelcast is about to uh, start its third novel. So we got a lot of big stuff going on here at the Solitaire Rose Network. We also, I keep promising a new podcast and not just the uh, series in review, but it looks like I have signed a a new podcast that I will not be involved in. I know I've said that a couple of times, but this one looks like it's actually going to happen. So lots of stuff going on. want to thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with more stories. Yes, here at Solitaire Rose Networks, we have ads. That's right, we have ads. 
just like every other podcast. Come on, it's okay. Our first advertiser is our longest-running advertiser, and that's DreamHost.com. DreamHost.com is the best, bar none, web host all over the interwebs. You could go to other web hosts. You could go to the ones that have big ads on TV and everything, and they're not going to give you the service, the dependability, and and the reliability of DreamHost. Head on over to DreamHost.com, use the code CRAZY, K-R-A-Y-Z, and get $20 off your first year of web hosting. Another of our sponsors is Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club has great blades at low prices, and let's face it, you gotta shave. Head over to shaved.by slash C19DC, get you some blades. They're wonderful. I use them. I use all of our sponsors. Matter of fact, head on over to crazycomics.com over on the right-hand side of the page. You'll see all of our sponsors. Bombas, Grays, Flaviar, Dollar Shave Club, and Dreamhost. If you would like to advertise on any of the podcasts in the Solitaire Rose Network, you can just email solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com subject advertising. Another fine podcast from Solitaire Rose Networks. The end.